0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you want some earbuds? Do you want some headphones? Do you want to get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com? You can do that. Listeners of this podcast can do that. Go to tweakedaudio.com enter the offer code other people O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L tweakedaudio.com enter the offer code other people O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L get 33% off of your purchase get some earbuds, get some headphones wear those earbuds, wear those headphones listen to things tweakedaudio.com, 33% off do that, these are earbuds, these are headphones you can listen to things with them go and get some, oh my god
1: you are not alone you
0: have found other
1: people
2: you and i have a friend in common
0: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done
2: i think it's really beautiful jesus did what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded
1: seeing what was really there and now here's your host brad listing
0: just one person at just one time everybody right. here we go again right. this is it this is other people this is not what you paid for this is me in a slightly agitated state in a sweltering garage how's it going out there What's happening? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, Is this a permanent shift back to two episodes a week? I don't know. Happy Memorial Day weekend, by the way. As as many of you know, I used to do two episodes a week, Wednesday and Sunday, uh, for the past uh, couple of months, two, three, four months, maybe longer. I guess since the, the beginning of the year, I've been doing one episode a week on Wednesdays. Uh, So I'm doing a Sunday episode today Just for you Yeah And uh, I don't know if it's going to be a a permanent shift Because my schedule is unpredictable I would like for it to be but we're going to see If I can get it all done It might be sporadic We'll see, I can't promise you anything Uh, I have a great show for you Sean Doyle is my guest He's got a new memoir out It's called This Must Be The Place Available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms Sean Doyle, momentarily so I have some uh, news about uh, the pregnancy. My wife Carrie and I expecting a uh, baby boy this summer, as many of you know, and we a while back I told you know I talked about this on the show a while back we went in and had a scan and it showed some weird stuff on my son's brain and uh, you know not what you want to hear. it was an ultrasound. the ultrasound then led to a fetal MRI. There's a progression of tests that they put you through. And anybody who's ever been uh, through a pregnancy knows there's lots of tests, and doctors tend to err on the side of caution. I also sometimes think, like, you know, they get paid a lot of money for these tests. Maybe they're just doing the tests to get paid. Is that too cynical? But anyway, we get this information about my son, we get the fetal MRI done, it confirms what was seen on the previous ultrasound. And I don't understand the, uh, you know, the neurology of it all that well. I don't understand the medical part of it. What I was told, what we were told, was that our son had a uh, brain ventricle. One of his brain ventricles was measuring uh, a bit too wide. That can be an indicator for uh, problems. So we were concerned about it. I talked a little bit about being concerned on a uh, previous episode, but it was one of those things where the doctors were like, well, there's not much you can do about it. Uh, We just have to kind of wait for the baby to arrive in order to know could be something, could be nothing. Which is about the most maddening diagnosis you could possibly receive in terms of uncertainty. So uh, fast forward about a month. And in the meantime, you know, I have a buddy who is a neurologist. And uh, I'm getting him involved. I'm sending MRIs up to him so he can look at the film and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Trying to get a sense of what's going to happen. And uh, I'm also trying to stay calm because there's, you know, there's nothing to be gained from freaking out. And I have a pregnant wife who needs me to, uh, maintain composure, which I'm excellent at by the way. And, uh, so uh, yesterday, Carrie, my wife goes in for, by the way, I call her my wife a lot. I feel like in conversation on this podcast, it's only because you guys don't know her, you know, and I don't know how much she wants to be named on the show in public. I guess I can say her name. It's not like a possession thing. You know, my wife, <laughs> do I need to clarify that? So, uh, anyway, Carrie goes in and, uh, she's due for just like a regular checkup and she's going to get, uh, uh, an ultrasound to see where things are. And she got the ultrasound and, uh, the problem that we had seen a month or six weeks earlier had completely completely, uh, righted itself everything was fine <laughs> the ventricle had shrunk back to its normal size and uh, it's good doctor's like there's no problem this looks perfect so of course Carrie is texting me the news I'm you know we're celebrating via text message and it's just a great relief I've been hugely relieved uh, all day you know ever since for the past like 36 hours. So I just wanted to, I feel, I feel like I should tell you that since I told you that there was a a potential problem. It's all good. Uh, Our boy is doing great and uh, he's due in a couple of months and he might be here sooner because in addition to finding out that his uh, brain is in good shape, we also found out that he's uh, big. He's measuring two weeks bigger than he should or bigger than his uh, normal for this period of the pregnancy, 30 weeks. So Uh, It's a, you know, who knows when he'll come out, but he's a big boy. And uh, Carrie is very pregnant. She's so pregnant that if she clears her throat, she pees her pants. (laughs) And uh, any ladies out there who have ever carried a baby to term, you know what I mean. You understand that level of incontinence. So it's very exciting. And I appreciate all the good wishes and uh, good thoughts. Got a lot of nice uh, messages after that previous episode. And uh, I really appreciate that. You know, who knows? I think maybe it helped. I think it might've. I I believe in like thought energy. Thought is a form of energy. Is it not? Like if you're in a big group of people, like let's say you're in a stadium full of people and everyone is like thinking really negatively, you're going to feel that, right? Even if nobody's talking, you're going to feel it. Conversely, if everybody's thinking really good thoughts or not thinking at all, you're going to feel that too. A silence like thunder. (laughs) You know what I mean? Thought is a form of energy. It helps me to think of it that way. Positive energy feels better than uh, negative energy. So I thank you for sending positive energy and I hope you'll continue to do so. Otherwise, you know, this week for me, the big thing, uh, that, that stands out in my mind is David Letterman. And, you know, he retired this week after 30 years on TV. I don't normally get caught up in this sort of thing, but I grew up with David Letterman and I grew up in Indiana and, you know, David Letterman grew up a stone's throw from where I did, went to high school, a stone's throw from where I did in broad ripple and, uh, you know, he was really a figure of my imagination from the time I was in elementary, you know, elementary school. And then, you know, we moved to Indiana and then it became especially so because uh, I was like, oh, my God, he's from here. I don't know. That sort of thing affects you when you're a kid, especially when you're a kid and you're living in a place like Indiana, which can kind of be a blank space. Geographically, you know, it's very flat. The winters are long without any real redeeming qualities. It's just a uh, flat gray and cold and rainy for half the year and then the summers uh, are a bug infested sweltering nightmare it's not that bad but you know what i mean it's like uh, it's an interesting state and uh, i think maybe when you come from a place like that as opposed to say los angeles or new york or one of these media capitals uh you know you latch on to any kind of local person who is uh, creative and doing work that you find interesting. So Dave Letterman, when I was a kid, was a real hero. Kurt Vonnegut, similarly. Axel Rose uh, captured my imagination, terrified me a little bit. Other famous Hoosiers, Michael Jackson, Jane Pauley, Charles Manson, James Dean. So, but Dave Letterman and Vonnegut. And then Axel, you know... I feel like Dave Letterman and Vonnegut were uh, heroes to me in a way that Axel was never really a hero, but he was kind of like a rock. I mean, he wasn't even kind of. He was a a huge figure for me musically. I feel like Appetite for Destruction was maybe the biggest album of my youth in terms of the uh, impact it had on me because I was about 11 years old when I first heard that, and it just uh, knocked me back. Guns N' Roses, you know, Guns N' Roses was scary. (laughs) They were serious, you know. Very fascinated by the the speed with which uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, you know, rose and fell. It was like from the the time from birth of star to supernova was very short. But when they burned, uh, they burned very uh, hot and bright. So anyway, Dave Letterman, uh, I have a couple of Dave Letterman stories. You might have heard them before. I I can't remember. Did I talk about this before in the context of an interview or in a monologue? But since Dave retired this week, I'll uh, I'll share a couple of memories involving David Letterman uh, from my personal archive. So uh, the first one, I met Dave Letterman in about 1989, I think it was. I guess, was I a freshman in between, you know, going to be a freshman in uh, high school? And I was at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the Indy 500 automobile race, which takes place on a Memorial Day weekend. Perhaps you're watching it right now as you listen to this podcast. But uh, Letterman is a huge racing fan and has been for many years and is actually an owner of a, a, a co owner of a racing team, like Letterman Ray Hall, I, f- I think is what it is. So he goes to the race every year. And uh, when I was a kid, I was in the infield with my friend Patrick we were walking around, uh, and suddenly we're like, Oh my God, there's David Letterman. And there was a, a group of adults coalescing around him. Uh, many of whom I think were reporters trying to get some sort of uh, comment from him. And, uh, I remember squeezing my way through the crowd. I asked a reporter for a piece of paper and if I could borrow his pen. And I said, uh, Mr. Letterman, Mr. Letterman, can I please have your autograph, sir? And he's like, of course. He, he kind of looked to me uh, I, You know He looked to me immediately Because I was a kid And he was surrounded by adults And uh I think it was a police chopper So he looked to me And he was like Yeah yeah and let me, I'll give this kid my autograph He was good that way And he asked One of the guys Standing next to him To turn around So that he could write on it You know Using his back As a uh As a de facto desk And he said Okay son What's your name And I was like Brad And he's like could you please spell that for me and I spelled it for him and uh, he smiled at me and laughed I think he was fucking with me I think he was I've, I've, I have other people have uh, theorized that I said it and then he immediately forgot it and then he asked me to spell it so that he wouldn't have to ask me again but I don't think so I could be wrong I like to think he, he uh, made a joke at my expense it's my claim to fame. So there's that. And then uh, one of my teachers in high school there in Indiana actually was a college uh, classmate and friend of David Letterman. And I think she was in, my teacher was a female. She was particularly good friends with Dave Letterman's uh, girlfriend, or I think it was his first wife. I want to say he got married early, like in college and had a short marriage uh, early in his adult years. But, uh, you know, in high school, we would always ask her for David Letterman stories because she had known him. And she said when he was in college, you know, he's living in his uh, shitty apartment in Muncie, Indiana. He had a television and a canoe in his apartment. And if you went to his house, you would uh, turn. he would turn the television on, and then everybody would load into the canoe. <laughs> and it, I think the canoe... I don't think the canoe was um, perpendicular to the television. I think it was actually, like, pointing directly at it. Is that perpendicular? You know what I mean. It wasn't like the the canoe was like a straight horizontal line and then the TV was in front of it. It was like the canoe was a vertical line pointing directly at the TV and then everyone would sit in the canoe and uh, you know each person would lean in an opposite direction in a kind of staggered manner in order for viewing to take place. That's a legend anyway. David Letterman had a canoe in his living room in college. And, uh, you know, I think about that and maybe when I was in college, I had an elevated couch for the first, uh, two years of my collegiate existence because uh, my, the, my aforementioned friend, Patrick, this is all, I have a good story here. So I go to a psychic the day before I leave for college in Boulder, my sisters and my mother gave it to me for my birthday. I would get a psychic reading before I went off into my, uh, college years and at some point during the reading the psychic is like name you can you can now tell me the names of any of your friends and i'll read them and tell you what's going to happen to them and i got to patrick and i was like patrick and she's like he's not ready for college he's going to drop out And i was like no he's not he's going to central michigan (laughs) he's going to be a central michigan chippewa it's the experience of a lifetime there's no way he's dropping out and uh sure enough he dropped out by the end of the first semester he got on an Amtrak train because I was like, "Well, you know, don't go home and live with your parents. That's depressing. Come out to uh, Boulder. Stay with me." So he takes a tr- uh, an Amtrak train out to Colorado, and uh, he starts to to stay in my dorm room with my roommate and I. My roommate uh, Gerber from uh, Pittsburgh. We we were just assigned to be roommates. We be, we became fast friends, and then my buddy Patrick comes out, and he's sleeping on this tiny little love seat that was, that was all that would really fit in the dorm room. It was a small room and it was so small that we decided eventually to lift it up and put it on top of some dressers to save space. So it was like, you know, a good four and a half, five feet off the ground. You had to climb up there to even get on the couch and Patrick with no place else to go wound up living in my dorm room as a refugee for my entire spring semester of my freshman year. And uh, Gerber and I would just like steal him bagels from the uh, cafeteria, feed him. And Pat just uh, just did bong hits on my elevated couch for like three straight months. Didn't really leave the room. <laughs> Everyone called him Pot in the dorm. He was like a, he was like the house pet of the dorm, or some kind of mascot. He was a spiritual figure upon whom uh, many of us relied. And uh, so yeah, so maybe the elevated couch was in some way like a distant cousin of the canoe. I felt like I needed to be creative with seating arrangements so we did that and it became a thing people would come down to our dorm room like friends of mine from the dorm would come down and they'd be like can i sit on the elevated couch and we'd be like of course became a thing to take bong hits on the elevated couch your legs dangling and we had uh you know this is before you could get cable television in your dormitory so we had just a shitty little black and white tv with no cable and we lived in the basement of the dorm it was called the pit and uh, we would turn the TV on and the only thing we could really get was televangelists Benny Hinn was like a faith healer total uh, charlatan he would like lay hands on people and they would act like they had been electrocuted and you know all this kind of stuff but that was my freshman year just uh, Patrick and uh, Benny Hinn and the elevated couch Gerber So anyway, uh, I just wanted to salute Dave Letterman. What a career. And and like, you know, I know I'm rambling on about this, but I was thinking this week, uh, celebrity comes with a lot of downsides, the loss of anonymity being chief among them, but... You know, Letterman had this really successful career. He was never the king, but he was or, you know, never the king in terms of ratings, but he was the king in terms of, uh, artistry and, uh, you know, the reverence that other people in his field had for him. He was truly the one that everyone kind of looked to. And you really got a sense of that in an authentic way, uh, with all of these, uh, what's the word Encomiums? Is that, the, is that the right word? Am I fucking that up? You know what I mean? Everyone was kind of paying tribute and like breaking down in tears, which, uh, you know, I'm sure today seemed like, uh, overwhelming but it felt sincere like when jimmy kimmel started crying talking about it it didn't seem like it was a performance when uh, norm mcdonald lost it you know did you guys see this it felt real and i, I sort of understood it i think what uh, you know when somebody's been on the television for that long it's like they come with the tv and uh it's like uh, they're always there 32 years so somebody uh, about my age It's just always been there. So it's a time marker when someone like this retires, leaves the television. He's not in the box anymore. Where did he go? I felt like something similar happened kind of when Michael Jackson died. He was a time marker for people. You know, you have these uh, cultural figures who are just, uh, you know, larger than life and always there. And then suddenly they're not there. And there's a, a mourning or a grieving And the grieving is as much for the loss of that cultural figure as it is for oneself because you're like, oh shit, I'm getting old. But, you know, as sad as it was in a way, it was also really uh, wonderful and uh, kind of inspiring and uh, envy inducing because here you are, you're Dave Letterman. You have this long career. You're a big success. You're uh, super famous, fabulously wealthy. You know, he knocked it out of the park and Then he retires and everyone is just gushing and weeping, (laughs) giving him standing ovation after standing ovation. I mean, what's that like? How rare is that? He got to go out on his own terms. Usually that age, 68 years old, they kick you out, especially in show business. It's a rare thing to get to go out on your own terms in any field, but especially that field. And to get to go out like that, uh, was awesome. Happy for him. Funny guy and a decent guy. And I know he had the sex scandal and I know, you know, but he, he owned that, you know, no one's perfect. So anyway, uh, that's all I have to say, I think. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Let's get started with the show. Uh, Sean Doyle is the guest. He's got a great memoir out. It's called This Must Be the Place. It is lean. It's about 100 pages long, but it packs a big punch. And it is available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. Here he is, folks. This is Sean Doyle.
2: I got a call from my mother in January of 96. And she was like, hey, I have, she was living in San Diego and I was living in Phoenix. And she was like, hey, I have lung cancer. Please don't come. I'll tell you when you can come. But I am have a doctor who's being taken care of. So I totally understood that. And I was like, all right.
0: So, wait, why was she in San Diego, and why were you in Phoenix?
2: I was living in Phoenix, and she and my little sister were living in San Diego. They had moved there.
0: Okay, what about your dad? So, uh,
2: He was living in Phoenix. He was living around the corner from me then, but they were divorced, and oh, okay. he was remarried at that point. Gotcha. Okay. Um so, pretty quickly, like, you know, she was doing chemo and radiation, but pretty quickly things got really weird. Um, her colon burst from the radiation treatment. And she was in a coma and my sister called me. And so I finally went out there and um, I was out there off and on for like three or four weeks and she just wasn't coming out of it. They weren't sure what was going to happen. And then she came out of it on like May 9th of 96 and told me to go home, told me she was going to be okay. And I flew back to Phoenix and actually, today is 19 years to the day. May 12th is 19 years to the day that she passed. It was Mother's Day that year. And I was at work, and my sister, my sister paged me, and I called her back, and she's like, you need to get here right away. And I flew to San Diego, and by the time I landed in San Diego, she, would, she had passed. Um, yeah, it was she. It was a really – I mean, I was 25. I had no idea how to prepare for that. Right. You know? Um, no concept of anything other than my own anger and my own grief. Like I remember yelling at her oncologist, like asking him why, why he just let this shit happen. Like I was just out of control. Um, and it was hard. And then, uh, I stuck around for a couple of weeks and my sister graduated college. I hung out with her and I went back to Phoenix and went back to my old routines of just getting loaded all the time.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, like, when you've got a predisposition towards substance and then you go through something like this where you're in an incredible amount of emotional pain, uh, it can it can often exacerbate.
2: Yeah, and it's funny because I changed my substance of choice right after her death from alcohol to cocaine. um, And that really did a number on my body, um, like, because I was doing so much of it a day that, like.
0: How much were you doing? Uh, two, $300 worth a day. Oh shit. How are you getting the money for it?
2: I worked in a restaurant in Phoenix, a pretty expensive Ritzy restaurant. So if I couldn't get cocaine, they were giving it to me. Okay. Just kind of how it goes in restaurant world.
0: Just like the chef,
2: Some days the the chef walks in with an eight ball and goes, here's your bonus. You did great yesterday. You know? Yeah. So it was a lot of that. And then uh, in 98, like July of 98, I had like a weird episode where it felt like something in my heart popped and I went to the hospital. And then that was the last time I ever did cocaine. So I stopped cocaine way before I stopped everything
0: else. So wait, what, what um, do you mean something in your heart popped?
2: I was standing in line in a bank with a bank bag with like $18,000 in it from the day before stuff at the restaurant. And I was standing there, and all of a sudden, like, everything in the room got really weird, and it just felt like some hot liquid thing inside of my chest burst. Were you high? No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just done. had just done, like, two big, giant lumps of cocaine off of a key in my car before I went inside. So, yeah, yeah. I was definitely high. But that was, I, I mean, I don't know, I'm not to get all woo-woo, but that was the universe saying, like, you're oh, done, dude. You've been doing this shit for so long, you've messed with your brain's chemistry, and now you're going to have panic attacks for the rest of your life. Enjoy them.
0: You think that's what happens? Because I'd be like, where do these panic attacks? Do you have panic attacks to this day? Oh, yeah. And yeah. Comes, you think it comes from doing a lot of cocaine? I think I, I, I'd like to think
2: so, because I don't want to think that I carry around that much shit inside of me that that's what it is. <laughs> I'd like to think that the cocaine altered my body and my brain. To that point yeah
0: is there a way do you think and if to that's re- a delusion that's fine do you think there's a way to uh reverse it like do you medicate for these panic attacks or do you do stuff that to help maybe you know because i mean if, if you did i
2: meditate every day okay. you know i um i do a lot of really chill stuff like i make a lot of really weird ambient music and that kind of like lets me space out and not feel a lot of stuff I spend a lot of time with my dog when I'm really stressed out. I like to like lay down on the floor with her and put my head on her chest and listen to her breathe and listen to her heartbeat. And that always brings me down. You know, yeah. there's a lot of tricks that I've figured out over the years. Um, panic attacks are really weird. I mean, for listeners who've never had them, like it's just, it, you're having all of the physical manifestations of your worst fears. You know, you're having these physical manifestations of a heart attack or a stroke or things like that nature, even though you know it's in your head and it's not real. It still feels so real that your first reaction is to immediately pick up the phone and start dialing nine one one because you think you're going to die.
0: Yeah, I have a friend who had a panic attack uh, just after college and thought she was having a heart attack and like drove herself to the hospital and you know did the. Yeah, work.
2: that's what I did in July of ninety eight. And the second I walked in, I'm like, I'm having a heart attack. And the nurse looks at me and goes, No, you're not. Sit down.
0: So wait, this was when you were at the bank and you felt something pop in your chest.
2: Yeah. I, I just sat down on the floor in the bank, and people were looking at me like I was crazy. And I realized what was happening. I got up, walked out to my car, and drove to the closest hospital.
1: Damn.
2: Walked in, and I was like, "I'm having a heart attack." And the nurse was like, "No, you're not."
0: So wait, did you cash, did you cash the uh, eighteen thousand dollars? Were you still carrying? No, it was
2: in my car. I left it in my glove box.
0: So this restaurant was giving you access to eighteen thousand dollars in cash.
2: Yeah. Okay. I'm not a. I'm a. I'm an asshole, but I'm not a thief. Well, I don't know. <laughs>
0: That can buy a lot of blow 18 grand can buy a lot of blow, you know?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that can also buy you like 25, 30 years in prison.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true.
0: So
2: I always tried to make sure that whatever I was carrying was just enough for me and not enough for distribution.
1: Right.
0: See, you've got, you've got a strong uh, survival instinct and some good common sense. Like for all the fuck, all the crazy shit you've done, like you were not completely, you never let yourself go completely haywire. You always had like at least one toe in reality.
2: I tried to. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, so let me ask you what sets off, uh, you, are there certain triggers or situations that set off a panic attack or is it totally random?
2: I think for me, it's if I'm not getting enough rest, that's a big part of it. And also if I'm not exercising at all.
1: Uh-huh. So
2: if I've been like really sedentary and I just sit around and chain smoke and drink coffee and I don't get enough sleep, that's going to spur it on, you know? Um, um, I think weather has something to do with it for me too. Um, like right now, because it got really hot again, I'm, ma- I'm making sure that I'm staying super hydrated. Because when I get dehydrated, like those feelings that you get in your, in your gut from being dehydrated, where you feel like a dried sponge, like my brain could automatically be like, your liver's failing.
0: So there's an element of hypochondria. Absolutely, yeah. And I've had
2: that since the first time I understood that my body is mine. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's co-fungus. No, it's not. It's cancer, like Bob Marley. I'm dead.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, and like you've, and the thing too is that you've had some really close encounters with death and loss, and yet, uh, having had those, do you feel like you're any less afraid, or do you feel like you're more afraid of death?
2: I don't even know if I'm afraid of death as much as I'm afraid of the ride being over because I'm not done yet. You know what I mean by that? Sure. Like, I have no control over death. You don't have control over death. You and I could get hit by lightning right now having this conversation, like, simultaneously, and the whole world will freak out because it's never happened before, but we had no control over that. That's just fate or whatever or chance.
1: Right.
2: You know? But for me, it's more along the lines of, like, I still got shit I want to do, you know? Yeah. I still... There's people I want to meet. There's work I want to do. There's smiles I want to get. There's hugs I want from people. So... It's more along the lines of that. And also like it sounds really egomaniacal, but like I don't want to die in a really fucked up embarrassing way. Like I don't want to be the guy who's walking down the stairs in his building and like has a mini panic attack and his leg seizes up and he falls down and cracks his head open and that's how he goes out. That's not how I'm supposed to go out. <laughs> how are you supposed to go you out? Know? I would like to like I would really like to go out in my sleep, you know?
0: Yeah. At an old age. But if
2: that's yeah, like sixty-five, seventy—that'd be cool for me. I mean, my mother was fifty-two when she died. My father was fifty-eight when she died, and I'm forty-four right now. So if I can get past fifty-eight, I'm cool. Right. I'm good with it. Right. I, I've had a great life,
0: you know. Wow, your parents died young.
2: Yeah, yeah. They both died from lung cancer.
0: They did. Were they both smoke, heavy smokers?
2: Um, I don't know if they were heavy. I'm a heavier smoker than both of they were. Both of them were. I'm totally fine. Yeah. So, okay,
0: but they did smoke.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. So, and you, and yeah. you said, so 98 was when your mother died. Is that right?
2: 96, 98 was when I quit doing cocaine. Oh, right. like, so I did two years of cocaine fused, infused grieving for my mother. And then my, my pop got sick in October of 2005. He got diagnosed with lung cancer and both
0: of them, their diagnosis got caught really late. They were both in
2: stage four uh. when they got caught with it.
0: So I mean that seems, but that seems particularly tough because you'd already you'd already lost one parent to this, and you kind of had to relive it. I mean, it just seems like.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, not to not to not to sound callous or anything, but I liked the parent who, at the time, I, or the parent that died first was the parent that I actually liked. Was ah. the parent that I didn't have a lot of conflict with? You know. Right. Um. My 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 father and I like. I mean, it's Irish father and Irish son like. He was 22 when I was born, which means I would have a 22 year old right now. And if I had a 22 year old that was as fucked up as I was, I would choke him too. You know, <laughs> right? I, I would probably choke him too.
0: Wait, so, so your dad and you got you guys used to get into physical altercations.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as hormones started like filling into my body, yeah, I was I was a defiant smartass, and he was a hard headed smartass. Right. So it just was kind of clash of the young titan and the old titan
0: and so what happened to your relationship and as your teenage years progressed i mean were you guys hanging at all were you talking or was it kind of just uh
2: we tried like a family therapist tried to get us to hang out more like i was even on my dad's like bowling team for his job with him once to try and like bond <laughs> but all that involved all that involved was him getting me fucking really drunk at 16 and 17 years old when and there was no reason for that
1: yeah
0: was he a heavy drinker yes Okay, absolutely. So, so the full on Irish
2: Yeah, there was definitely romanticism there for him. Alright.
0: So okay, so yeah,
2: my mother didn't drink at all, so that's that explains everything there.
0: And she was the nurturing one. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Okay. She was the kindest person I've ever met in my entire life.
0: And when did they uh when did they split?
2: They split right after I graduated high school. He pretty much split that week. Okay. So in nineteen eighty nine, he was just like ghosting out.
0: That's so strange. I had, like, two or three friends in high school whose parents split in exactly that manner. Like, as soon as as the youngest kid, like, walked out the door from graduating high school, that was it. Like, they hung on that long, and then it was over.
2: I wish he had waited that long until my sister graduated, because he really... I mean, it really did a number on her. She deserved better than that, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, and then, like, not that long after that, you know, my mom dies, and my sister had been living with her, and they were best friends. It just really... So bummed me out for my sister, like, and I know it sounds like, a, oh, tough guy, older brother, like I can deal with it, like I I can get fucked up and deal with stuff, like I don't. My sister's not wired the same way I am. She's like a super kind, amazing, loving person. Like she and her husband volunteered, They live in San Diego. They go down to Mexico and build houses for people. You know, that's the kind of person that she is.
1: Wow.
2: So it just it bummed me out, you know, that he split after I graduated high school, and I remember telling him, I'm like. You're such a fucking dick, you couldn't have stuck around until she graduated, like you just bolt when I do. What did he say? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> I was telling a friend of mine the other day that growing up I wasn't sure if my name was Asshole or Faggot.
0: Really? He was that yeah. hardcore.
2: To me. Yeah. Not to anybody else, because I was the one he could bully. And it wasn't and you know what the thing is is I don't think that stuff didn't come from a place of love. It's just how he knew how to relate to me. Uh-huh. You know, What's and it's he- funny, you know, because he wasn't homophobic, you know, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't violent towards other people. It was just me.
0: What do you think it was? Do you guys, you guys a lot of like?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think that was a big part of it. I think he saw a lot of himself in me, right. you know, like a smart kid who would like, you know, fuck his way through something and still do better than the other kids. And, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: But did he feel? Did your did your dad have like uh, frustrated ambitions or anything like that? That might. Did he have like an anger thing that you could like pinpoint?
2: I think he might have. I mean, you know, you have a kid at twenty two. Right. You know. Right. You know, yeah. you're you're a kid yourself at twenty two. Like who I was at twenty two. There's no way I could be a father, and like you know, God bless anybody who can do it. There's just no way I could do it. I'm forty four and I still can't do it. Right. <laughs> you know. There's no way it's not, it's not in me to do that. And it doesn't mean I'm selfish and it doesn't mean I'm selfless. It just means I know that I'm not capable.
0: Right. Self-aware. You know? You're self-aware.
2: I hope so. Otherwise, like, you know, what the hell did I write a fucking book about my life for, right? <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so, uh, so, okay. So you have this kind of, uh, this grief period. First there's co it's cocaine grief, and then you have the hard episode slash panic attack. And you drop yeah. you drop the cocaine, and then it's just booze and pot. Like what? It, it's booze. It's booze
2: and pot, and every now and then, like I would buy a bag of heroin and smoke that, just to have another taste treat involved in it. You know?
0: Okay, but never you and never then got pills never, if you, I could find them. Okay, but you never get? Did you ever get deep into heroin?
1: Uh,
2: for a little while, but I was able to pull myself out of it. It wasn't too bad. Okay. It was a, it was about a good six month run of being kind of deep into it, but I was functioning. So it. You know, I held the job through the whole thing and and I didn't really let on as weird as it was and I I had like a schedule that I kept. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't get high I wouldn't get high while the sun was up.
0: Okay. That's interesting. So I was yeah, it's doing interesting that. interesting for somebody who's deep in substance to have that kind of discipline like uh, sustained. Like I know people usually start with the best of intentions, but that stuff usually starts to slip as things get dark.
1: Yeah.
2: I I mean, I was even able to main that up until the time that I got clean and stopped everything. I I had like rules for myself because I knew that if I started like doing the whole like wake up, get loaded thing, then I'm I'm just I'm not going to be anything. I'm not going to have
1: anything.
0: Well, and it's funny, too. You know, it brings up an interesting point about addiction because I I was having this conversation the other day uh, with a friend of mine is that, uh, you know, addiction doesn't always look the same from one person to the other. Uh, That's you know, absolutely true. you have people who are getting up and getting loaded and, um, it's really messy and obvious and, you know, every cliche you can think of, uh, in terms of behavior. Uh, but then you have people who get loaded like once or twice a month, but when they get loaded, it's like spectacular, you know?
2: Like, yeah. And everything, yeah. They burn everything around them when they do it.
0: Yeah. And then, but then they're sober and then they're I'm like,
2: not taking the babysitter home. I'm driving the car into the fucking canal. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> So, yeah, it's just important. It's an important distinction to make because I think sometimes, like, uh, you know, you can sort of passively think that, oh, these are all – these cases are all the same, but they're not. Right. So
2: Yeah, and everybody – you know, and also addicts have really great coping skills, you know, especially addicts who figured out ways to function, um, to, to kind of appear to be like regular members of society. Um, And addicts have really great coping skills. They figure out ways to mask everything they're doing, you know. I mean, like, I love Jerry Stahl. Like, Permanent Midnight, when I read it, changed my life. You know. Sure. But not not everybody can get away with the shit that Jerry got away with. You know.
0: Right. He's like, yeah, he's such like a witty guy and like super charming. He's the
2: best. Yeah. He's he's the best. When I read that book, I was like, I think, I think I might take another shot at this writing thing. You know.
1: Right.
2: I might I might keep going because I'd always written when I was a kid. It was like. One of the only ways I knew how to communicate with people because of the speech impediment. So right,
0: and what was know, the, what was the was, speech impediment again? It was just like you whistle. I had like this really high
2: whistle on my s's. Like it was just awful. It was like Cindy Brady in that episode of the Brady Bunch.
0: No shit. How did what was that? Yeah. your tongue was in the wrong place. Your teeth were. The... Yeah, I think I think my tongue just wasn't
2: landing where it was supposed to land. You know, there are certain words. You know, when you're talking, you can feel your tongue touching the back of your two front teeth. And it's like an end stop type thing there. And with S's, for some reason, they just flew around and just maybe I had too much spit in my mouth as a kid. I don't know.
0: Did you get a speech therapist?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I went to a speech therapist and I fixed it. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't hear it anymore. Either that, or I'm desensitized to it. Nobody <laughs> makes fun of me anymore. But it might be because I'm six foot tall, two twenty. <laughs> no,
0: I don't, I don't hear a thing. I don't hear a thing. <laughs> so okay. So um, just to keep tracing this line, you know, because it's '98, you stopped doing coke, and then you you went into the military.
2: I know. I was in. The, I went into the military in, uh, when I got out of high school. So in the, in immediately. Early, Uh No, I went in in like early 1990. Okay. So then uh so I graduated high school in June of 89 and then I went in like January of 90.
0: And how um, and what which uh, which branch of the armed forces were you in? I was in the Navy. Okay, and what did you and how long were you in? What did you do?
2: Um I was in long enough to go to the first Gulf War. So you were and in,
0: in what I, active combat?
2: Uh, it's classified.
0: <laughs> For real?
2: Yeah. Here's the thing. I have no problem with people talking about their military service. I think it's great that they can do it. I'm just a weird old school guy. Um signed a contract. I got to honor that contract.
0: Why did you join the military?
2: I think because I probably already had PTSD from growing up.
0: You were like, so, oh,
2: I'm like ready. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, I tried to join when we remember when we invaded Panama in 1988. Yeah. I like had already dropped out of high school at that and I went to the Marines to try and join, and they told me I was too smart.
0: Really? Yeah, they were really weird uh, about on it. On the basis of what judgment? Like, what did they? How did they decide that you were too smart?
2: My ASVAB scores. It's a military aptitude test. They were like, you should go join the Navy and be a nuclear technician, or you should join the Air Force.
0: Wow. And so, were you, getting, yeah. were you getting good grades as a high school student? Or are you? Are you just? A... Yeah,
2: even though I was fucked up all the time, absolutely. But, but I also got kicked out. Of, I got kicked out of a couple of high schools and had to go to, like, an alternative high school where I was one of the few dudes at that school who wasn't a felon, and um, most of the girls in the school were like young single mothers.
0: So why did you get kicked out of your uh, previous high schools?
2: Um. Well, because I was in all these honors programs and I hated them. And so I started fucking with my teachers. I was, uh, and then I started like just ditching school a lot. I just stopped going to school because I was so fucking bored and I didn't really get along with anybody. Um, I was just a weird kid. I just preferred to be in by myself.
0: And so you wanted to join the military and just get out of Phoenix and have an adventure or?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, when I finally actually did join the military to go, like, it was because my dad was gone, um, and I knew that I was driving my mother crazy being around, and I didn't even tell her I joined, and then she came home from work one day, and I'm like, Mom, and she's like, what? I'm like, I joined the Navy, and she's like, you're lying to me, and I put the paperwork in front of her, and she just started to cry, and she was just like, you did this on your own, and I'm like, yeah, and she was just like, I'm so proud of you, you know.
0: And then then what, you went to training and shipped out. Yeah,
2: I went to boot camp. I went to boot camp in San Diego, then I went to a couple of specialized schools and then uh I was stationed aboard the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier, which was based out of Bremerton, Washington, and we immediately went to the Gulf.
0: Wow. That must have been a hell like a hell of an experience. Yeah,
2: you know, I think the thing about the military for me was it taught me a lot about who I don't want to be.
0: <laughs> which is what <laughs>
2: I just don't want to be somebody who doesn't question the things going on around him. You know, I understand like, it's like if you and I were working together and I said, Brad, I need you to do this. And you were like, why? I would say do it first. And then I'll tell you why.
0: That's the military. You know, we just
2: kind of, yeah. And it's also kind of how, in a lot of ways I was raised by my dad, you know, and the military, it's more along the lines of like, you know, you don't question anything. You just do what you're told. And that's fine, you know, if the hierarchy in place or the chain of command in place is dope, and they know what they're doing. But you know, we're all human beings. None of us are infallible,
1: <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, you great. know, yeah, especially for somebody who's got like a, a quick or analytical mind, or you know, it's got to be it's got to be like a little bit unnerving if you feel like the chain of command isn't uh, in command.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then you kind of have to. And, but the other thing that the, the one thing that I think I learned out of that was I learned how to communicate with people in a way where I wasn't disrespectful to them or their authority. Um, and that was a hard thing for me considering that all I ever did was disrespect my father when I was a smart ass kid. So it was a weird fish out of water thing for me that end up becoming a really good experience because now I can, I, I I'd like to think I can talk to people without pissing them off, which is good because I didn't used to be able to do that at all.
0: Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I got to feel you, you, were kind of a hot-headed kid or you'd had, um, you know, kind of a tough upbringing and a tough relationship with your dad, and then suddenly you're in the military and, you know, you've got to sort of uh, step two, you know, listen to what you're, be- yeah. what you're being told. Like, did you ever have any trouble making that adjustment? Did you ever get yourself in any kind of disciplinary trouble in the military?
2: Oh, yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah, like my first my first morning in boot camp, my company commander had me, like, yeah there's a, there's a scene in the book that I wrote about where he had me doing this thing where I was basically my legs didn't stop pumping up and down while I'm like doing the rifle thing the three points up and down my body um because I folded some socks wrong.
1: <laughs> Jesus. Yeah.
2: But at the same time I was laughing inside. so i I'm like, you're not even remotely as mean as my father has been to me. You're not going to upset me. You can say anything you want. This is what I need right now. You know? Right.
0: Yeah. You're like, I've seen so much shit. I like, there's nothing you can throw at me that I haven't seen at home.
2: Right. Exactly. You're not going to hurt my feelings worse than my father did. Or you're not going to hurt my feelings worse than I feel like for being shitty to my sister at some point, you know? So it's like, it, that's the thing. It's, you know, you were talking about self awareness, like, and I said that, like, the reason why I joined the military is probably because I had PTSD. But I think it was also like, where else do I fit? You know, right. I don't think I fit anywhere. So if I don't fit anywhere, I might as well go somewhere.
0: Yeah. And you weren't worried about like, oh, you know, what if I get shot or killed or shipped? Right.
2: Or yeah, no. no. I don't think I've ever even. I don't think I've ever worried about that in general because if it did, that's the day. That's the day.
0: Okay. See, I would be worried about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, I totally understand. I do. You know, and that's the funny thing. I don't have a, it's, it's weird because like we're in this time period right now with literature where pe- a lot of people are writing about, you know, soldiers. And you really think about like a lot of these young kids who are writing, they don't know a world without war, you know, the, the Gulf War was in 90, 91, and we've, pretty much been at war ever since then,
0: haven't we? Well, we've been at war ever so, since the Korean War, practically. I mean, you know, like... True, yeah. It's been it's been kind of a nonstop uh, production. And ever since, like... And pretty much ever since Eisenhower uh, warned us about the military-industrial complex. I mean, that was a very prescient warning, in my view.
2: Absolutely. And then, you know, then we get Reagan who comes along and just ruins everything for everybody. That's why we're the way we are right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, I was looking at just... You know, there's all... There's no end to the like uh, amount of charts that you see online, and you know infographics and whatever. But there was a there was a um, uh, inequality, you know, relative to the uh, disparity between the rich and the poor. You know, like just like a very simple oh, absolutely a simple graph, and like starting in 1980, um, this you know the amount of money accrued by the the wealthiest few just shot up, and we've been living in that world ever since. It's kind of hard to refute that it started then. And we've been living in that world ever since, you know. And uh, you know.
1: Yeah,
2: well, and it's funny. Did, he named it trickle down, didn't he? Yeah.
0: It sounds, <laughs> sounds like it sounds like somebody's peeing on you, doesn't it? You know? like, yep, it can't be good.
2: Not only that, but like there's only little tiny bits for everybody else. Yeah. Like if there's a tiny little leak in the bucket, maybe people will get something. But everybody else, they got that bucket,
0: right? Right. Yeah, I (laughs) know.
2: Yeah, I pretty much blame Reagan for everything, but that's because I'm an 80s punk rock kid, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's not, there's definitely a lot of blame to go around, but like that, the whole idea of like greed is good and, uh, you know.
2: Yeah, and also we didn't, you know, before 1979, we didn't have the problems that we have in America with mental health care or with the homeless population. Right. He shut all that shit down right away. Like, not only did he break up the air traffic controllers union, which started the destruction of unions in this country, he shut down the national mental health care system, which put all these people on the fucking streets. Right. Thanks. You know.
0: They, they live. you They used to live in my neighborhood in Hollywood for sure. I knew, yeah, I knew a lot of them.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's here in Greenpoint. I mean, it's, it's something I do in the wintertime here in my neighborhood because it's a it's a predominantly Polish neighborhood. So there's a lot of guys who get kicked out of their house for being alcoholics. They get to go home on Sunday to go to church, but then they get kicked out again. And so in the winter at night, I go out with like those Mylar space blankets in a backpack and just hand them out to the guys. Because I'm just like, don't freeze to death out here.
0: Right.
2: You know, and every time somebody opens a shelter in the neighborhood, whoever lives on that block throws a shit fit and gets it shut down. Right.
0: It's tough, man, because it's like. This is what we, I mean, uh, you know, um, my wife and I used to like, because there's a church in our neighborhood that would feed the homeless, which is why, a lot of the reason why there was such like an intense homeless population in our like specific neighborhood, like a three, you know, right. three square blocks. And uh, like our, our dark joke would be like, would you just please stop feeding these people? You know, like mm-hmm. we didn't mean it, but it's like, what do you do? What do you do with all these people? Because uh, they're, they're around, a lot of them are fucked up. Uh, I've never felt it never felt like it was particularly dangerous. But like sometimes, you know, there were situations where people were unhinged and you would feel especially with a small child. I have a kid. Um, yeah, exactly. But, you know, you're just trying to, like, cope with it mentally. Like, how do what do we do with these people? Where do we put them? Like, what's the what's the right. answer, you know, and it just it's.
2: And they're inherently less dangerous than a kid loaded on cocaine driving his dad's BMW. Exactly. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they're way less dangerous than every character James Spader played in the 80s.
0: <laughs> right, 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 Yeah, it's fucked up, man. So um, just to get back to you, though, the military, um, you know, substance, like you, you went in right out of high school, you go, over to yeah. the, you go over to the Gulf, you know, you couldn't have been getting too fucked up while you're in the military. I mean, I know there was probably,
2: no. we made wine on board the ship.
0: Okay. So you you had your, (laughs) that's easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. But you're also like getting up at like, you know, you're getting up at the crack of dawn and the, the, the lifestyle, like that. Yeah. When you're at
2: sea, when you're at sea, you work 16 to 18 hour days. They just try and keep everybody busy. So nobody goes crazy. You
0: know? Yeah. 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 So you do that. How long are you, are you active duty?
2: Uh, I was active duty for three years.
0: All right. I got out a year early. And so what? You're 21, 22 years old?
2: Uh, I went in at 19. I got out at
0: 22. Okay. And then you're a, a back in civilian life.
2: Yeah. Then I went back to Arizona and tried to go to college. Right.
0: And what What happened then?
2: <laughs> I just got high. Okay. You know, I, I'm like, hey, I'll go back. Yeah, I'll go to Arizona State. Yeah, that's it's home. It's cheap. I'll go there. Yeah, it's the biggest party school in America.
1: Right.
0: So you were just getting fucked up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. making a lot of money. Like, it's amazing how much college kids will pay for decent weed, right, you know? Right.
0: There were, there and were, after, I knew, I knew people in college who were just making tons of money doing that. I never got my act together enough to be the guy who like, was like, you know what? There's some, there's a business opportunity here. You
2: know? <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. I mean, it, it's something, it's something I've fallen back on from time to time in my life. What's You know, like we selling weed. So, Yeah, it's medicinal. Like, if I could still smoke pop, believe me, I would. If there's anything, like, I don't miss any kind of high except for this one. I miss smoking a fucking joint and blasting Black Sabbath. Like, there's nothing I miss more than listening to Black Sabbath when I'm really high. Right. Everything else, I don't give a shit at all. But that... That's something that pops into my head every now and then, where I'm like, "Man, <laughs> I really, really, really want to listen to Supernaut when I'm really stoned." <laughs> um,
0: but you can't do that because I mean, pot doesn't seem nope. like, super addictive. But that's like, but when you have the addiction, like, you can't do anything. Pod, including I
2: don't pot. even take Tylenol, Brad. I don't take Tylenol. Okay. Like, I'm on medications for my diabetes, and even that, I'm just like, really, do I have
0: to do this? All right. Like, what? what is it with pot? Like, with pot, like, if you if you started smoking pot, you feel like it would just escalate. You'd backslide.
2: I think so. And, and, and you know what? It's not something I would want to tempt anyway. I've done it this... I've got eight years clean at this point. Why tempt it? Right. You know? I mean, there's plenty of other people out there who can do that. Good for them. Like, yeah. when somebody... Like, in New York, people smoke pot openly walking down the street. I love being behind some guy who's walking down the street, smoking a joint because it makes me happy for him.
0: Right. I like that too. When I smell it, I'm like, all right, you know, like there's something. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like Steely Dan starts playing in your head. You're like, yes. Ricky didn't lose that number.
0: Steely Dan is like, uh, I love Steely Dan because there's something very Los Angeles about it for me. Like Los Angeles in the 1970s, you know, like I, Yeah, it's
2: it's cocaine music. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and it like it evokes a time and a a period of time and a place that like I had really nothing to do with, but yet like it makes me feel like I was there, like in a in an immediate way somehow. Sure, do you feel that way when you watch Boogie Nights too? Yeah, I mean same kind of thing. Yeah, but I love Steely, Steely Dan reminds me of like. Uh, a party at Jack Nicholson's house in, like, you know, 1974 or something. I don't know, you know.
2: That makes sense. Yeah, and everybody's wearing, like, really loose-fitting, like, white clothing, white linen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Early right. Scientology stuff with yeah. Jack Nicholson.
0: Yeah. So, uh, okay, I want to get to when you get clean. I mean, like, uh, first of all, you know, your your dad uh, is diagnosed in what? You said 2005?
2: In October of 2005, yeah. So And we hadn't really spoken for, like, five years before that. Oh, wow. But a really close friend of mine had been killed in July of 2005. What
1: happened? And one of
2: the last—he con- uh, was killed in a bicycle accident. Oh, shit. <laughs> and one of the last things he said to me, we were drinking at this bar, and we were really, really loaded to the point where, like, the bartender was pretty sure we were going to kill him. Um, we just kept reaching across the bar and pouring our own drinks. But uh, he looked at me, and he was just like, you need to stop fucking referring to your father as a sperm donor. He's your father. He was twenty two when you were born, stop being an asshole. Fix it. And then like a week later he was dead. So I realized that I should probably honor that.
0: So wait, your buddy said this to you? Yeah. And in that and you were that fucked up and you remembered it. I remember
2: that you wanna know the worst part? I remember everything I've ever done no matter what I've put in my body. Really? And that defeats the whole purpose of doing it. Right.
1: Yeah, right.
2: You know, they're like, oh, take Xanax and drink. I'm eating 10, 15 Xanax and drinking a bottle of tequila. I remember everything. Wow. It sucks.
0: Yeah. Shit isn't working.
2: Now, either that or, like, I'm supposed to remember everything. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe probably better that you do. Well, it makes for better stories. That's for sure,
0: <laughs> right? So, uh, so your friend. <laughs> so said... my
2: dad got diagnosed. My friend told me that my dad got diagnosed. I has, I was brief when my friend died. I freaked out and left New York and went to Fayetteville, Arkansas, of all places, for some reason.
0: Well, but how long? How long after your friend uh, told you this did he die? He died a week later. Oh my! Okay, that's right. Okay, it wasn't your dad that died. Yeah. Back, it was your friend, and he was just hit by a car. Uh he was
2: riding his bike. Uh, he was training for the five borough bike race. And he was doing a pretty decent amount of speed, and there was a kid on a bike up ahead of him, and he kept calling out, "On your left, on your left!" And the kid veered into him. Oh. Um, so he, yeah, he didn't make it out of that. Kid was fine. Damn, but yeah, it sucked.
0: So then you go to. So and you were in New York at the time.
2: Yeah, I was. I was in New York. I was in Bensonhurst, where I grew up. I was living there.
0: And then um, you took off to. And then Arkansas?
2: I freaked out. I freaked out. I freaked out. Went to Fayetteville, Arkansas. A friend of mine was living down there, and she was just like, "It's a really liberal city." No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's liberal for you. It's not liberal for a dude who looks like me, who's covered, you know, in tattoos, standing in line at the bank, and the second I walk in, the guy's unholstering his gun, <laughs> or at least unsnapping it. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. yeah, not the right spot for me. So how and long? I, I was there for, like, less than 90 days because my dad told me he was like, diagnosed. So I just packed everything up, drove back up to Brooklyn in 24 hours, put all my shit in storage, and then flew out to New Mexico where he was to take care of him.
0: Okay, so that's interesting because you haven't spoken to your father in in many years. You guys aren't on good terms. Right. But the moment that you find out that he's um, got a serious illness, you pack up everything and you go out to be with him.
2: Yeah, I asked him. Like, when I was talking to him, like, do you need me to be there? And he's like... Yeah. And I'm like, then I'm there, you know? Um, and also I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I wasn't really involved as much as I wished that I was in my mother's care, you know, cause I didn't live there and I didn't know any better at 25, you know? So I wanted to make sure that my father was at least being taken care of or at least comfortable. So I flew out there the day after Thanksgiving and, uh, yeah, he was gone by December eighteenth on my birthday. My father died in my arms on my thirty-fifth birthday, basically.
0: Oh my god! So, so
2: he, my was, mom died on Mother's Day, yeah. and my dad died in my arms on my birthday. He, he, I think they wanted me to remember. Right,
0: <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: they were just like, you know what? You were an asshole as a teenager. You will never forget this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fuck, man. So your dad was pretty ill when he called. When he finally called you, like he was, he was near. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and his wife his wife had called me a couple of times, but like uh, we didn't really get along, so I didn't really know what to do. I asked her, I'm like, "Did you want me to come?" And she's like, "I want you to come." And I'm like, "I need to hear that from him," you know. And when I got there, he was in the hospital. Um, They said he had like really bad pneumonia, Um, and then they released him to come home. When I got there, we took him back to the house, and then the next day we went to the oncology center, and that was a day that we had to tell him that they couldn't do anything more for him <laughs> oh. and that was that was super heavy to like look at you know this this man that you wanted to be your hero, and you had all this conflict with him, so you had all this fear based stuff, and you see him like just fragile and fucked up, and like just with this look on his face while the oncologist is telling him we can't do anything more, and then he looks at me and he's like. You know, Sean, is there any kind of alternative medicine we can do? And I'm like, Dad, we're just going to go home. We're just going to go home and I'm going to take care of you. That's what we're going to do. What did he say? It sucked. He just mumbled, man. You know, he just kind of like pulled his baseball hound down a little further over his face and just mumbled. Hmm. So, that's right. You know, and then, yeah, but there's some weird, like, gallows shit that happened while we were taking care of him. That's for sure. Like, he was like in and out of consciousness for a couple of days. So we called the priest to come give him last rites. Um, (laughs) So this priest is giving my dad last rites and he's been out of it for days. And all of a sudden I'm looking at him and he opens one eye and looks at me and sticks his tongue out. (laughs) (laughs) And then after the last rites is over, the priest leaves. He goes, that was some fucking bullshit. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, he had, he, you know, he knew, I mean, at that point, you don't have a choice. You have to take the ride. It's over, you know?
1: Right.
2: I hope I go out with as much grace, you
0: know? Was it, was I mean, was, did he go peacefully or? like Well,
2: I mean, they they gave me plenty of morphine to keep him loaded. You know, they gave me plenty of morphine to make him comfortable. And when you die from lung cancer, you drown. You basically drown. Your lungs fill with fluids and you drown. That's how you die from lung cancer. And so... There were just days and days. I basically said, like, I'll take the night watch because it was quiet and I could spend time with him, you know. Um, Every night he would hold up three fingers while I was sitting there reading a book, which meant he wanted three fingers of scotch. So I would make him a scotch and make myself one and we'd just sit there and talk and I'd have to listen really close. And we forgave each other for a lot of shit without ever talking about it. We didn't have to talk about it.
0: I was going to ask, you guys didn't have, like, the big, like, cinematic heart-to-heart or it was just more... No,
2: we didn't. I don't think I don't know if people really do that, you know, because we we pretty easily could have done that. But we didn't need to. We knew, you know, I was there, you know, I, I dropped everything to come take care of him. And he asked me to come take care of him. It was pretty clear that we forgave each other.
0: You know, so there was still a lot of love there. It's just there's just been a lot of hurt, too. And it made it hard to be. Around
2: yeah, I, I always loved him. I mean, I never stopped loving him and I never wanted anything but his love. But, you know. It's it's hard to be to be forced to be I guess masculine when you have so much coming into you from your mother at the same time like you know for as testosterone filled as I am I'm a big fucking softy man like I cry if a cat doesn't let me pet it <laughs> right. so you know there's a lot and and I think a lot of growing up was him trying to toughen me up maybe because he wasn't tough as a kid I don't know. I mean, I didn't really, that's the other thing that sucks is I didn't really know him. I just knew my relationship with him. I learned more about him from his brothers after he died. Like, I just thought that my dad had only had like two or three jobs in his life. I had no idea he did all the shit that he did when he was younger.
0: It's, it's, it's funny, like how little we know about the people who are supposedly closest to us. Like, yep. like really know. It's hard to get to know a person.
2: It's true. It's true. And it's also that also involves a person being willing to let you know them, too. You know, it's like I write really openly about things that have happened in my life, but I'm still a private person. You know, right. Like, I don't but write about the current. I mean, this is, I guess this is the thing. Here's here's my editorial comment. Like all the stuff that's in my book is stuff that happened before 2005. So that's 10 years ago. Right. So it's like things that happened in my life up until 2005. I can't. I mean, I couldn't have written that book when I was 25. I couldn't have written that book when I was 35. I was able to write that book now. I I think for me, what works best for me as a person who writes nonfiction or writes memoir or whatever we want to call it, I need some time to really sit inside of things that happened before I can speak on them without interjecting like omniscience or like wisdom that I didn't have when it was happening and things like that, you know?
0: This perspective yeah and it's and also it's like
2: you need time to understand your own responsibility too, your own accountability for things that happen not everybody's a villain <laughs> you know and also like, if you're writing about your life like just make yourself the villain <laughs> it's so much easier because to somebody you are <laughs> you are the villain
0: Right. Well, I mean, yeah, the that, that's the thing. I mean, it's like when you said, like, uh, it's hard to know who's the villain, it's like I, I, the thought that occurred to me, but which I didn't say, is that there, there are very few villains, like truly, like, dark, cruel right. people. You know, like a lot of people, even those people are just confused. You know, like it's. Yeah, they're just fucked up.
2: You know, like, I mean, we could, you and
0: I could sit here and say David Koresh
2: was a villain. You know what? He was, but he was also just fucked up. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of people followed him into that fucked upness.
0: Well, I get very uncomfortable about the whole evil thing. There's evil in the world and there's evil. I think there's evil behavior, you know, but this notion that there's like good and evil and there's some sort of, you know, you've got to defeat evil and crush it. And like, I'm not comfortable with that line of thinking.
2: Me neither. It's a power trip. It's somebody trying to tell you what their right and wrong is, as opposed to yours, you know? And that stuff is shaped through experience. Like, you know, you have a young daughter. You could start telling your young daughter tomorrow, piñatas are evil. I don't want you around any piñatas ever, which sucks because you live in L.A., right? Right. But she's going to grow up never wanting to be around piñatas, and she's going to start scolding people about piñatas. And then that starts this cycle. And I think that's a really American thing. It's something that happens here more than anywhere, I think, where people just shit-talk something because it's something that they don't like. And then it becomes... Right, and it, and then it just becomes some sort of quote unquote evil thing or something undesirable.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it seems like it seems it's too easy. It's lazy, you know. Like
2: yes, it ra- is. Rather than it's get- not that hard to investigate your feelings. <laughs> it's just don't be brave enough to do it.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I think some people just don't have the equipment or the willingness. You know, I think. That's a big part of uh, so much human pain and suffering, I think, is just this unwillingness to confront one's own suffering. People don't want to get into their own feelings. They don't want to get into their suffering. They want to avoid. I mean, that's what you were yeah. doing. That's I mean, that's what people who are doing uh, a lot of drugs and, you know, they're, they're you're, it's, you're trying to numb yourself, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I was trying to dull all the bad shit that was in my blood, dull the thoughts, dull the feelings, dull the fear, dull all of it. And, and you, you know, there was, like, a smidge of self-destruction in there, too. So,
0: Yeah, suicidal stuff.
2: Yep. Yeah, suicide, but suicidal ideation is, like, the most normal thing for any sentient human being over 14 years old. Because what happens when you're, like, between 12 and 14, you realize you're going to die. You also realize that you didn't ask anybody to be born. Like, you didn't, like, send a pelex from inside of your mother's womb and say, hey, I want to be, like germinated and become a thing right like none of us asked for it and then we find out it's going to be taken away from us so why wouldn't you have suicidal ideation like because it's going to end i remember the first time i freaked out about my mortality is when i heard that our sun was going to grow and envelop the entire universe in five billion years i didn't have the wherewithal to understand i would already be gone i just kept thinking about what it would be like to be standing by the ocean and the sun engulfs the planet
0: yeah I know it's funny. My daughter, somehow my daughter found out that the sun's going to explode or, you know, someone, yeah, someone I'm sorry died. if I did that. I just said it now though. <laughs> she's like four and she's like, but daddy, she's like, the sun's going to explode. I had to be like, it's not going to explode anytime soon. Cause like I have this honesty policy where right. I, I try to just like, I'm not going to sugarcoat. I'm going to just try to find a way to use language, but be honest with her. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to explode. Eventually it's going to burn out. You know, stars have what are called supernovas and, you know, but then you just start to feel ridiculous. The kid's four years old and you're trying to process this. It's just, it gets, to,
2: yeah. it gets to be absurd. She probably, she probably saw like Matthew McConaughey in like an interstellar commercial and retained it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Or some kid on the plane. That's crazy. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's, it's, you know. uh, at least you, at least, at least you have that honesty policy. So many parents just like, no man, Santa Claus is real. Yeah, He's yeah, coming.
0: <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's funny. I told her that Santa Claus wasn't real, but she still believes in him. And so now I'm just that's like, good. now she says, uh, is he? She the other day, she's like, is he real? And I said, what do you think? And she said, I think he is. I was like, that's great. You know, like let her have. That's
2: her. all that matters. <laughs>
1: yeah, whatever, honey. <laughs>
2: until the first, until the first Christmas, she comes out and she sees you like laying on the floor, half-ass wrapping her presents and stuff. Right. And then she's gonna go, Oh, you're Santa. Yeah. How do you like the cookies?
0: Right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about you getting clean. Okay. So when did that That was happen? a decision. Okay. When did that um, happen? Like your your father passes away. Uh, my dad
2: still- died in December of 2005. Uh-huh. And on my flight home back to New York from his death while I was sucking on one of his fentanyl lollipops that I stole.
0: A what lollipop? I told my
2: fentanyl, okay. which is a synthetic morphine. Oh, right. Um, yeah. I uh, I told myself, you have a year to fuck off. You have a year to be a fuck up and do whatever you need to do to not feel this shit, but then you're done. Um, and so I fucking, my, my clean date is St. Patrick's Day because my father's birthday is March 16th. It's,
0: very Irish, it's a very Irish thing to do.
2: Yeah, so my last drink was on my father's birthday, and uh, I took two shots of Jameson's, one for him, and one for me, and that's it. Nothing since.
0: And you knew, Just like the you, over. Were, you were like, "This is it." Like, and, and okay, so yeah, what, I was geared up for it. All right, so in the, in the, I like. Was that a year? Was it a year after your father had died? A year and change?
2: Yeah, like a, a little bit, a little bit longer than a year. Yeah, but I had already weaned off of stuff. The only thing that I was still doing from like January to March, when I finally stopped, was like taking Xanax for the panic, and I stopped that too. So.
0: So you weaned yourself off of everything. Yeah. So you're very yep. you're a very orderly addict. I mean from from the beginning, ever since you started describing this to me, like you always had rules. Yep. You're able to. I mean, yeah. You're able to exercise some control. Yeah,
2: because I think I think that's part of like my experience with stuff too. Is like I I have better experiences with things if I set even just the tiniest bit of a borderline for myself, you know, like don't do this, but you can do everything else, you know? Um, and it usually worked out fine. I usually had a pretty good understanding of where to put that border where I wouldn't go over too far.
0: And when you finally quit, you know, it's a, what was the day before St. Patrick's day? Is that what you said?
2: The last drink was on yeah March sixteenth so yeah. So
0: you didn't even let yourself go get ape shit on St. Patty's Day.
2: Hell no, it's an amateur day. A- <laughs> <laughs> like like St. Patrick's Day, New Year's Day, Cinco de Mayo. Those are fucking amateur holidays, man. <laughs> a real drunkard, a real drunkard understands that those are the days you just drink at home. You don't go hang out with those people. who only do it three times a year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you 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 have your last drink, and you've never had another since. Not one. Wow. Not one. Do you And you didn't go through 12 step?
2: Not this time. I tried it many times before. It works for people. It's great. Never worked for me before.
0: Because, like, there's the thing, like, that, like, and I, I get that. I mean, like, there's different ways to, to climb the mountain. You know, there's different paths up the mountain for everybody. But, uh, yeah. You
2: do have to. I mean, there are definitely things from it that I apply to what I'm doing. But because I'm not doing it that way, I wouldn't say that I'm doing that. You know, it's like anything else. I mean, I cribbed from so many different religions to make up. My own shit that works for me. I can't claim to be any certain religion, you know?
0: Well, what about, like, let's talk about the sobriety thing because I think sometimes people who don't do 12 step get accused of being dry drunks and, you know, they're, right. you know, like, well, well,
2: like that's what I was talking about earlier about the politics of it and things like that, you know?
0: Yeah, it's like you've rehabilitated, you I mean, you're not using anymore, but you haven't really rehabilitated the emotional or spiritual side of you, is what, like, someone in AA might say, right?
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, that's probably something I would say. Or, you know, the whole, like, community aspect of it where you have people who've been through the same type of things that you have holding you accountable for your actions, you know, um, which is fine. I mean, my wife has been sober longer than I have, so I had somebody that understood what I was going through and gave me room to learn and grow,
0: you know. Did she do it? Um, I mean, may I ask, like, was she a veteran? She did. She did, yeah. Okay, so she knew. So you have, but you have a support. And then, like, did you have a therapist or anything? Or is this something you kind of just shouldered on your own with, like, books? and?
2: I've, I, you know, I've been in and out of therapy so much that the problem for me is that, like, I find a therapist and then I figure out how to calm them and then it's over. So I just, I had to do this to myself. I had to make myself accountable. You know, for the longest time, I kept, like, a journal, like, just an an open document that never ended where I was writing about like the things that I was remembering or the things that triggered me or the things that made me drink or the things that I did when I was drinking. To, and that was really good for me to do.
0: I was going to say the writing's got to be, uh, I mean, and this is kind of a, a hackneyed thing to say, but the writing had you know had to be therapeutic.
2: Yeah. But you know, the, I think another thing about memoir is that your audience is not your therapist. Stephen Elliott told me that and he's right. You know, um, that's the shit that you keep for yourself. That's not the shit that you put out there for the world to read.
0: <laughs> so, like, what kind of shit would you not put in the book? You know what I'm saying? Like, what does that mean? Like, you just like this? Oh,
2: omission. A mission a is the most important part of writing a book, don't you think?
0: Well, sure, sure. But I'm just saying, like, give yeah. Me, give me an example of something that you wouldn't put in the book.
2: <laughs> um, well, the book is pretty raw. Um, there's things I wouldn't put in the book. I mean, I wouldn't put in the book like the fact that. I was the kind of guy at a party who would go around and drink all of the beer with the cigarette butts in it. Like nobody needs to know that. That's that's dog shit, you know. Like nobody needs to know it was that disgusting. <laughs> nobody needs to. Nobody needs to know that. Like I would be scraping out pipes for resin and smoking resin. You know, things like that. It's already bad enough as it is.
0: Right. You don't need to gross people out unnecessarily. No,
2: not at all. No one. Yeah, no one needs to know that. No one needs to know the proper recipe for a cocaine enema. No one needs to know any of these things,
0: <laughs> right? But your therapist does,
2: <laughs> right? If you can find one that can tolerate it, <laughs> yeah.
0: So what about uh, what about spiritually? Because like I know that's often a component to people getting sober, and you know they.
2: Oh yeah, I've always I've always been super spiritual. So that's something that's definitely like kept me rolling right. Is you know daily meditation and things that I do like ritually. Right. Like, we have rituals. What you about know?
0: growing up? Were you, like, Irish Catholic? We were given a
2: choice. So I chose being Jewish, and my sister chose to be Catholic.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> so your mom's a uh, Jewish, your dad's Catholic?
2: Yeah, but so I'm automatically a Jew. So is my sister, but she chose to be a, Christ- uh, a Catholic.
0: Right, but I feel like there's a lot of similarities. There's, I feel like a certain... As a Catholic, I feel like a certain recognition or something with Judaism, somehow. Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah, yeah they're the same. They're really... I mean, most... You know that's why they call them Judeo-Christian religions. I mean, they're mostly the same. Yeah. You know, they come from the same stories.
0: Yeah, but there's the guilt up until like, I the new like, I up until like, the
2: New Testament rolls in.
0: I feel like Catholic guilt and Jewish guilt are somehow similar, or there's some kind of yep. similarity.
2: You, you could throw Korean guilt, you could throw Mexican <laughs> guilt in there, you could throw Cuban guilt in there. Yeah. It's all the same. Yeah, that does. all comes from grandmothers.
0: <laughs> okay, that's what it is. So yeah. so you chose so you so you went Catholic. You were raised. No, um, I went Jewish. My sister oh, went Catholic. Okay, so yeah, so but I mean, how how much of a, a factor was it for you as a kid? I mean, was it something you really practiced?
2: Um, I didn't really practice, but I did have a bar mitzvah. and then I went to this really man. I went to the fucking craziest summer camp as a teenager. It was like this weirdo hippie socialist Jewish summer camp um, up in the northern part of Arizona um it was nuts we had so much fun so much fun at that camp
0: what did you do we smoked a lot of pot and
2: listened to a lot of really <laughs> shitty music <laughs> i mean to this day i can't listen to jim croce anymore because i'm just like no no i heard it enough
0: <laughs> oh my god and then so and then nowadays like you know it's it's evolved over the years and now what do you what are you like a jubu what is it what do you call yourself
2: I'm kind of, I, I, you know, I've am i rolled pretty close to being a Taoist.
1: Okay. Like, there's it?
2: a lot of, there, there's a lot of, Taoism is pretty much like, did you ever read the Gospel of John?
1: No.
2: <laughs> so, Jesus was kind of a Taoist. Taoist is, is that there's the way, and the way is the void, you know? So, you have the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, right? Like, all knowledge comes through suffering, nobody lives without suffering, enlightenment comes through it, all that other shit. Taoism is kind of like... <clears throat> Bruce Lee was the one who turned me on to Taoism. So he has this thing like, you know, you have to be like water. If you pour water into a glass, it takes the form of the glass. If you pour it on a counter, it goes around what's around it. And that's kind of the basis of Taoism. The Taoism is everything is as it should be. You have to relax and allow it to be what it is.
0: That's what you do. That's it. Okay, okay, so how do you do it? You say you meditate?
2: Yeah, I meditate every morning because I try and clear my head because I have really shitty dreams it's a really good way for me to reset my day. I've always been a bad sleeper. Um, So, you know, I I try and spend like a good 10, 15 minutes in complete silence when I get up. Just clear my head and just focus on something. Like sometimes I'll just picture like a big knot untying itself and that helps.
0: And then, what, like, what, okay, because I'm trying to get to the, like, how the actual, uh, Taoism, like, manifests in your day to day life. Like, you do the meditation. I get that as a, as a practice, as a thing to do. But then, like,
2: right. The Taoism is more of a philosophy than a religion, you know? So for me, it's about the way that I treat people. It's the way that I handle situations.
0: Yeah. So um, I, I, what I want to know is, like, when some, when shit goes wrong, you know, like you're having a shitty day, you, uh-huh. like, you know, shit, I don't know, what, whatever it might be. You're in traffic or you, you know, you're in a fight with somebody or, you know, like, how do you, What do you do? Is there something you do? Is there a way that uh, Taoism like, uh, comes in and helps you?
2: I think that the things that I've learned through studying different religions and things like that, and Taoism plays into this, is that, like, it doesn't matter how fucking shitty my day is or what's happening in front of me that's frustrating. I'm still here, and it's still there. And if I let it go, and I don't let it affect me anymore, it's not my problem anymore. I can just be, you know? So say, like, I'm at work and the power goes out. Well, I can't do anything about that until the electrician comes and does it. So if people keep coming in to want coffee and the power's on, I can say, hey, when the electrician's done, I can give you coffee. Otherwise, you want to hang out in here? You can hang out. It's dark, though. So. <laughs> you know, so it's just about learning how to roll with the punches for things and just allowing shit to be whatever it's going to be.
0: Well, and, so, and so now that you have this book out... um, you know, it's making its way out into the world. You've sort of unloaded all of these uh, experiences. You put them down. Uh, Yeah. Is it lived up to expectations? Like, did you have expectations for how you thought it was going to go? Has anything surprised you?
2: Um, I've been, you know what? I've been pleasantly surprised. Like, you know, I mean, it's something I've always wanted to do and working with Michael, working with CCM, obviously has been really great. He's just a good dude, you know, and he gave me the room to do this the way that I wanted to do it. Um, and he trusted me and I think we made something really beautiful. And it's been interesting. Like I didn't expect to get a review in the Chicago Tribune. I didn't expect for the Gawker review of books to hit me up for an interview. I didn't expect this re- that we're doing right now. I just thought I was putting a book into the world. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty surprised. I'm surprised at the reactions people are having.
0: You getting some nice uh, yeah. notes from people.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, it's weird people from your past pop up like all of a sudden, like I hate social media. Like I, ditched twitter back in january because it's, i i don't need other people to tell me who i'm supposed to be mad at you know right,
1: right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um and i left facebook around the same time but m- like right around the time at awp back in april michael was like will you come back on facebook for a while and i was like yeah i stuck it out it hasn't been as bad like i figured out that like what other people are doing is what other people are doing i can't freak out over stuff that has nothing to do with me and, um, Taoism. you know, every now and then, every now and then I get these like interesting messages from people from my past who are like, man, can't believe you wrote a book. And it's like, yeah, I know it's weird, right? <laughs> I can't believe I'm alive. <laughs>
1: right.
0: And, uh, what about your sister? You still are you still in touch with her?
2: Oh, absolutely. We're, we're pretty close. It's, it's really nice. My sister, my sister's kind of like my hero. You know, she's just, she's just one of the kindest, most loving people I know. And, She's just so supportive. It's really great. I mean, we grew up in the same house. But we had different childhoods, which happens a lot, a lot more than people realize.
0: Like yours, you was, yours was the, the more, uh, what, was tougher?
2: Well, I mean, I'm sure hers was tough in its own way, too. But, like, you know, my father never raised his voice at her. Right. You know? Um, and I don't think my mother was as soft with her as she was with me, you know, because it's different. So she had a totally different childhood than I did. You know, she obviously she heard all the yelling and stuff like that. But I think that she had a different life. So it's interesting. Like I know that she has a copy of the book. I don't know if she's read it yet or not. She's got so. it.
0: Read. I'm sure she's read it. Anybody who could possibly show up in the book reads the book, right?
2: That's true. That's true. Yeah, one would think. Oh no, I've had people go, "Am I in your book?" I'm like, uh, "Why don't you buy it?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Answer. just buy it <laughs> well listen just buy uh, it. you could send me the, you can send me the anthrax letter
0: afterwards right well uh, I congratulate you on uh, getting thank you on getting it out into the world it's been really fun talking with you I appreciate the time and the candor and uh, just wish you well with this one and with whatever comes next.
2: Likewise, my friend. Thank you so much for
0: having me. It's been a blast. All right, folks. There you go. That is Sean Doyle. His memoir is called This Must Be the Place, published by Civil Coping Mechanisms. Sean Doyle. Great talk. Uh, You can find him online at SeanHDoyle.com. SeanHDoyle.com. That's his uh, internet headquarters. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget to go premium. Sign up for premium. Support this podcast. Let me keep it going. Here's how you do that. Uh, You get the Other People app on your device. That's the best way. That's the easiest way. You can also go online and sign up for premium. Just go to otherpeople.com. And click on premium in the menu bar. There's information there. The easiest way, I'll try to explain it for you. You get the other people app. The other people app is free. You get that onto your device. You get that app at your favorite app store. Once you have the free app on your device, you get 50 episodes for free. The most recent 50 episodes of this podcast, free. And then to access the archives and uh, to be able to stream everything, including conversations with George Saunders, uh, Cheryl Stray, David Shields, Edward Dantica, Tom Perata, Susan Orlean. You just sign up for premium. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. It's less than a dollar a month. Great way to support the show. You can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very easy. It's user-friendly. So... Really relieved about my uh, kid, as you can imagine. You know, everyone's got a lot to worry about in life. That's one less thing for me. At least, you know, in an explicit way. You're always worried. I'm going to be worried until I'm holding him. But it just takes that really, like, uh, explicit worry off the table. You know what I mean. You don't realize how much you're carrying something like that around uh, with you until the doctor's like, oh, it's fine, false alarm. You're like, oh, fuck, thank God. So, good news, you know, a little bit of good news, nothing wrong with that. And uh, I hope I didn't go on too long about David Letterman. He's special to me, so I, you know, you just got to put up with it. Please remember that J.D. Salinger was awarded five battle stars in World War II and that Eva Lenoir saw combat with British commando units in North Africa, Crete, and the former Yugoslavia. That's all for now. Uh, thanks again, you guys, for listening. I sure do appreciate that. Thanks to Sean Doyle, SeanH.Doyle.com, once again, is his World Wide Web headquarters. And uh, thanks to Civil Coping Mechanisms. Check them out. Good Indie Press. And uh, I'll be back on Wednesday with another episode. Hope you enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. I hope you're watching the Indianapolis 500. Watch the Indianapolis 500. Come on, be a redneck. Drink some beer in the morning in a canoe.